Well, we are continuing to look at the book of Romans. We're in the middle of Romans chapter 3, so if you want to turn there, we're going to pick things up starting in verses in verse 9 and read through verse 20 and look at these uh, verses this morning. Last week, if you were here with us, we looked at the first half or the first portion of Romans uh, chapter 3, and there Paul has this kind of back and forth uh, argument, if you will, or a question and answer, basically responding to... You know, what advantage is it to be uh, a Jew? What, how is that a positive thing, Paul, in light of everything that you have said? And we looked at that passage from the context or from the perspective of, you know, what's the advantage of being part of the church and being identified on some level uh, with God's people? And Paul draws out uh, in these verses um, the privilege of having God's word, uh, being part of God's uh, covenant community. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are uh, immune to his wrath and judgment. Uh, it just means that it comes with uh, responsibility. It comes with certain privileges to be identified uh, a, a part of that group. And we talked about the, the privileges of being a part of the church. Uh, being part of the church doesn't make you a Christian. You don't become a Christian by being at the church, just like going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Uh, but being a part of the church does come with various advantages, uh, specifically and especially uh, God's Word and being around God's Word and hearing God's Word and having that understanding and speaking into our lives. And Paul is continuing this argument in this, this section, and, and he's at the, the close of it, of talking about uh, the bad news, if you will, the, the, the bad news of our situation, the bad news part of the gospel as he uh, articulates what God has done. And that's what we're going to look at uh, here this morning. And let me give you one maybe uh, further reason um, why we need to hear the, the bad news or why it's important and relevant uh, for us maybe today. Uh, if you've been with us maybe on a, in a, during a prayer meeting uh, here of late, uh, you've heard us pray about and pray for revival. We had a revival conference uh, some weeks ago. A revival is something that, that we can seek, but it's not something that we can program. It's not something that we can make happen, and I think we all get that. As we think about revival, it's simply uh, that the work of the Spirit in our lives, the normal work of the Spirit in our lives, but in a more intensified manner, if you will. And so if, you, if you're a, a, not a believer and you've been affected by revival, so to, let's say, then maybe that, what that probably means is you're hearing the gospel in a way that makes sense to you, in a way that you get it, okay? I, I see myself as a sinner. I see Christ as, as, as my Savior, and it clicks, and it makes sense to you. Some of us that move towards, uh, move or can be swept up into revival. We have the gospel. We understand the gospel. We would call ourselves a Christian and, and recognize that fact in our, in our lives, but there's a sleepiness about us. We've become nominal. We've become distracted. And being swept into revival means understanding afresh all of God's mercy and all of his care and all the, the things that he has done for us. And so when we think about revival, it involves the good news of the gospel, certainly. But it also involves the bad news of the gospel, what, our need for him. The, the gospel is never going to be good to us. It's never going to be appealing to us if we haven't first experienced the bad news of the gospel. And that is what Paul is continuing uh, to, to argue and to articulate uh, with us as readers of this passage. 
So if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, all the way through verse 20. Let's hear God's Word. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are in open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and and ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the words of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Father, these uh, words are um, bold. They are striking. Um, And we pray as we uh, sit and as we hear that you would give us eyes to see and that you would shape us according to your redeeming message. We ask in Christ's name, amen. You please be seated. Sometime back, I was on the phone with uh, a good friend of mine who is uh, planting a church and another in another in Tennessee, and uh, he gets on the phone and he calls me just kind of out of the blue, and he says, you've got to pray for me. I've really messed up. And I thought, okay, this is going to be really good. And so he proceeded to tell me what had happened. Uh, they, uh, at the time, were uh, a church plant, and they uh, hired this uh, 20-something uh, to be their, their worship leader. Uh, he, he had the, the skills, and he, he was a good worship leader. He was good at, at leading their, their time of worship, and everybody liked him. But the problem was he lived like 45 minutes away from the church, and so it was hard for him to be really involved in the community. He was pursuing a counseling degree. Uh, at the time, it was hard for him to really connect. And my friend was just kind of wrestling with this for, for a number of months and what to do and and uh, just really wishing that he was, there was something off and there was just something that, that was missing, really wanting him to be more part of the community in light of his uh, position, to be more connected. And so he's wrestling, wrestling with it, and finally he decides, that, you know, maybe we just need to, to let this guy go and we need to, to part ways. He's great, but it's just not working for us. And so he's not excited about this. Um, and he te- they've been texting back and forth, trying to set up a time to meet. Uh, to, to grab lunch so he can s- sit down and talk to him. It's like, hey, may, you know, maybe we need to, to stop doing this. This is not really working. And so he sends it, um, a, a text out, and this worships guy that he's going to let go, let's call him, his name is Chuck, okay? Um, and he sends a, a, a text, a quick text to one of his uh, leaders in the church, and he says, will you pray for me? I'm about to let Chuck go. And he hits send. And then he realizes after he hit send that he didn't send it to his leadership friend to pray for him, but he sent it to Chuck. 
And that's why my pastor friend was saying, hey, you've got to, to pray for me. I mean, there was no way to get around it. I've been in his, I haven't done this, but I have told a student that I loved him versus on text. And it was really awkward to come back and say, no, I don't, I love you, but I don't love you like that. That was for my wife. But there's no way he could get out of that text message. There's no way he could explain that away. He knew that Chuck knew, and he knew that it was going to be that much more awkward to have this conversation uh, with him. As we look at this text here, Paul is saying that, that we have no excuse There's no way to to get around the truth of of who we are and what Paul has been articulating uh, all these chapters. And so what I want to do with this passage is is basically look at, basically this passage is about the doctrine of sin, okay? If you were doing a writing up, what does the Bible say about sin? This would be one of the go-to sections about it that describes our situation, and so there's three things I want to do with this, or three points I want to make. I want to talk about the equality of sin, uh, the depth of sin, and the response of sin, okay? I told you this would be a bad news message, okay? Next week it gets better as we move forward uh, into the book of Romans, I, I promise, okay? First, the, the equality of sin. Think about the bold statements that, that Paul is, is making here and quoting from the Old Testament. Uh, no one is righteous, No one seeks after God. No one does good, not even one. He says, particularly in in, in verse 9, that Jew and Gentile, regardless of race, regardless of culture, regardless of background, uh, that we are all under sin. And think about that phrase, under sin, and maybe with the sense of as a legal term to describe us, a a legal term in the sense that we are citizens of sin. Uh, That's the... That's our citizenship. That's the country, the area that we belong to. We're under that. Uh, Verse 10, no one is righteous. Think about that as a positional term, that you stand before God not as righteous, not in right standing before him. That is our position before him. It's, it's, It's our legal standing, if you will. Maybe you've been to, um, you've traveled, you've been to a new area of the country, or maybe you've been overseas, or maybe you've just gone to a, a wedding rehearsal dinner or a wedding, uh, post-wedding party. And, you're, and my point is you've been in an environment where you're meeting new people. You're meeting people for the first time. And you think about those situations, what are they asking you? Has anybody ever come up to you and say, hey, what did you make on the, on the SAT in high school? You know, uh, does anybody ever come up to you and it's like, you know, how much, how much money do you have in your account? Um, you know, th- th- they don't, we don't ask those kinds of questions to one another. We ask what? Where are you from? Uh, where did you go to school? We ask questions that relate to more position and background, not achievement. My point is that the Bible is not asking you achievement questions. It's not asking you, who have you served? Uh, how much money have you tithed? How much uh, have you done for your neighbor? All those things are important, and the Bible says those things are important. But the Bible is concerned to ask you, where are you? Are you under sin or are you under grace? Are you counted as those who are unrighteous or as righteous? Do you belong to the kingdom of God or do you belong to the kingdom of the world? The, the Bible is concerned with where you are positionally. And that's because the, the Bible is, in essence, one story. It articulates clearly this is what's wrong with the world. 
It starts from the beginning, declaring that to us. You remember the scene of Adam and Eve in the garden, and they're confronted with this, this tree. And do they partake of it or do they not? God is saying, you can have everything. Everything else is yours. It's unlimited. You're in this beautiful paradise. You've got it all. This is all for you. You just can't associate. You can't, just can't pull from this tree. And, of course, they do what? They disobey. They break that commandment. And because Adam did that, and because of our special relationship to Adam, he is our representative, if you will. What happens to him is what happens to us, that we are under sin because of him. We are declared unrighteous because of what he has done. He represents us, and what's true of him is now true of us as well. It's like if Trump said, we're at war with China. We would be at war with China. We would say that we are at war with China because of what he has decided, because he represents us. And so it is with Adam. He represents us, and because of him, because of our relationship with him, we are in him. We are sinful. And when we get to chapter 5, this will be uh, drawn out more, artic- more clearly. And theologians will say that what Paul is describing here is total depravity. Total depravity. Now, when I say total depravity, this is what that does not mean. It doesn't mean that you are as sinful and everybody is as sinful as they possibly could be. Not total in that sense. Just look around at your neighbors. Not everybody is a murderer. Not everybody is an adulterer. Not everybody embezzles uh, from their company, okay? We are not as sinful as we could be, but it's total depravity in the sense of it's, it's total. Uh, everything about us is broken and falls short. Falls short. Our mind, our will, our emotions, everything about us is broken and falls short. It's total in that sense. That we are all lost. Maybe you've heard these uh, illustrations. Let's say you have two individuals who die, who are dead. One individual dies out of a shark attack. They find themselves in the in the ocean and they're bitten up by the shark and they are just they're dead. Another individual individual dies of natural causes in the middle of the night. Now, if you were to see those bodies, would you say that one person is more dead than the other? No, they're both dead. One doesn't look particularly as exciting, maybe, if you will, uh, but they're both dead. They both share that situation. Or maybe you've heard the swimming illustration. California to Hawaii. One man jumps in, and he swims. He gets maybe 100 yards, and he drowns because he's just, he skips swimming class, okay? You get another individual, average swimmer. He goes for like maybe 5, 10 miles, okay? And he drowns. He can't make it. And then Michael Phelps walks onto the beach, and he goes, and he gets maybe 50 miles, maybe 75, and he drowns. What's the point? They're all drowned. They're all, they, all three of them did not make it. They all, one is not more drowned than the other person. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate uh, to us, that we're all sinful. We are all share that uh, special position of lostness, if you will. Now think about this. Think about the individual who is saying this and is articulating this truth to us. It's the Apostle Paul. And we know that he was uh, Jewish, or he is Jewish, and he has this strong history of being a great Pharisee, a great religious upbringing, a great moral life. He knows the law. He knows the truth. And here is him saying these things. I am just as lost as my Gentiles. 
that I'm surrounded with. I am in just need of Christ as they are. I share the same position as they do. And for us as believers today, to say you're a Christian means understanding that I am just as lost and just as need of a redeemer as a person in jail, as a person that has done this scandalous thing or that scandalous thing. I share the same need as they do. I am just as lost as they are. We practice this in a sense. Uh, we just did it a couple moments ago when we had a confession of sin. That we all read that confession of sin together. What we're saying is, I am just as miserable, I am just as broken, I fall just as short in these things as my neighbor does, as everybody in this room. I, I know my lostness. I, I may look nice, I may put forth a good uh, image, so to speak, uh, but I am just as much in need of Christ as everybody else in this room. There's an equality of our sin that everybody shares in the same situation. Paul makes a, a case uh, as well for the depth of sin. This is the second thing, the depth of sin in verses 13 through 18. We get this pervasive, just how it affects us on every single level. It affects our, our, our minds, it affects our wills, it affects our emotions, it affects our, our sexuality, it affects our, our conscience. Uh, it affects everything about us. And there's two things in particular I want us to, to highlight just real briefly the first is how sin affects our understanding. In verse 11, he says, no one understands. You think about that. No one understands. Paul, what, what are you saying there? What do you mean by understanding? Because there are very smart uh, scholars or people, New Testament scholars, for example, who may not identify with the gospel, who may not believe that the Bible is true, but they understand the truth they understand that the material and the content that's being communicated in the Scripture. Paul, what do you mean by understanding? He says in Ephesians 4, he expresses it like this. He says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Paul is simply making the case that that sin affects your understanding. It affects your, your mind and your intellect of how you receive things and how you see, look at it. Think about who he has been talking about in this letter. He has been talking about the Jews for a number of verses. And he's saying, Jews, you've had the advantage of the very words of God, that you've had God's scripture before you, and yet, do they get it? Do they understand it? No, they don't fully get it. They don't fully understand what God is trying to communicate to them. There's a blindness that's there. There's a blindness that comes with us, to us, because of our sin. And it says to us that we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit of God to work and apply these truths to us. The second thing is this, and this is maybe a, 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 better, a bigger point, uh, how sin affects our motives. Sin affects our motives at one point in the beginning of that passage, he says that Paul says that no one seeks God. I think that's a really striking passage, a really striking thing, bold thing for Paul to say that no one on the face of the earth seeks God. How can he say that? Well, think about it like this. It, it does not say that no one seeks blessing from God. Whether you go to church or don't go to church, Christian or non-Christian, uh, on some level, it's, it's common to seek a blessing from God. 
No one says, it doesn't say, no one seeks answers to prayer from God. Everybody uh, can seek an answer for prayer. Uh, It doesn't say no one seeks forgiveness from God. All of us want forgiveness. Whether we believe the gospel or not, we we want forgiveness because of the guilt and shame that, that, that we feel. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that no one seeks God. No one seeks him for who he is as he is in himself. In other words, no one seeks God to desire, no one seeks God in the sense of, I desire God above all things. No one seeks God in the sense of, I want him to be the center of my life. I want everything to revolve around him. We don't naturally do that. No one seeks God in that sense. Seeking God is not an intellectual, it it doesn't mean that you're intellectually curious about him, that you've discovered and figured out, you know, the the arguments for the existence of God. It's not that kind of seeking, but it's a seeking of God in the sense of, I want to worship him for who he is because of just for who he is. That I want my life to center around him because of his power, because of his weight, because of his authority, because of his glory, out of a, as a fear from him, that we don't naturally do that. Because there's this, always this tension in us that I want to be in control of my life. I want to run things. I want to be at the center of all this stuff that's going on for example you go back into the book of romans and paul has talked about these are two ways to live that paul has outlined for us if you are outside the church or outside the christianity you are living for yourself you're living for according to your own truth and there's certainly that's an obvious they're not seeking after god and we see that that's clearly it's like the, the prodigal son maybe you can think about that story but we cannot seek god by being religious, by being moral, by being uh, faithful churchgoers. We cannot seek God by doing all the right things. And Paul is saying that we don't naturally seek him to worship him, to submit to him, to know him, and to live in fear of him. Now, both these cases, they're just not seeing it. They're not seeking after him. And you think about the, the truth of this passage and how it answers some of our questions, the things that we struggle with. Why do I struggle going to church? Why is it so hard for me? If I've had a busy weekend and Saturday has been great, but I am worn out, why is it so easy not to go? Why is it so easy for me not to pray? Why is it so easy for me to to avoid uh, reading the Bible privately? Why is it so easy to to check uh, check out on listening to this or doing that? It's because we just don't desire to seek him to make him be the center of our lives. That's the depth of our sin. Lastly, I want to talk about the, the response of sin. What, what do we do with this news? How does Paul instruct us and tell us what we should do? Look at verse 19. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable. That, that phrase there, that every mouth may be stopped. That there should be silence. That there should be no making of excuses. And no, not even apologizing, but there's a sense of just silence. That we just stop. One commentator articulates it like this. He says, the words, every mouth may be silenced, evoke the picture of the defendant in court who, given the opportunity to speak in his own defense, is speechless because of the weight of the evidence which has been brought against him 
and without saying a word, awaits his condemnation. One of my favorite um, shows or movies, it's really a miniseries, is Band of Brothers. And it's a, a miniseries about Easy Company during World War II. It starts off with them basically in training, and they're going to the beaches of Normandy and how they um, move through uh, Germany to the end of, of the war in Europe. And one of the last episodes, uh, Easy Company is, is somewhere in, in Germany, and they're in this town, and they're just kind of setting up and just taking it easy. You know, the war is about to end, and they know it's about to end. And there's uh, a team of two or three soldiers that go off and kind of um, walk the, the surrounding area of the town just to, to secure it. And they come across uh, this fenced-in area. They come across, and they walk, get up closer to it, and they see these emaciated bodies, just like zombies, wandering around inside this gated area. And at this time, that there may have been rumors of what the Nazis were doing, uh, but it wasn't clearly known, and so they had no idea what was happening here. They stumbled across this Nazi death camp. All the soldiers were gone. They abandoned They left, and they locked the gates and walked off. And the soldiers who are walking this, they get the, the rest of the company to come out and see this, and they figure out what it is. They, there are a couple of individuals that can talk, and they are just shocked and horrified at what they're seeing. And they go into the town, and their reasonable response to this town that's just close by, how could you not know? How could you not know what was happening literally in your backyard? And they bring these, these people that work in the town, business owners and individuals, and they bring them out to the camp there to expose them to what's happening, and they make them kind of help clean up and, and deal with what needs to be done there. And they're walking around with scarves over their, over their faces just because of the smell and the sight of it. And in a sense, they are just silent. They have no excuse. They have, they, have, they have no words to defend themselves by based on what's happened around us, around them. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate to us. Do you see the bad news? Do you see the truth about your sin? And does it silence you? Does it stop you in your tracks? And if it does stop you in your tracks, it may be a sign that God is working in your life. In John chapter 6, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Our silence is an indicator, a good indicator, that God is drawing us to himself. Because you're never going to see the good news of the gospel. It's never going to make sense to you. It's never going to be fulfilling or bring you joy and peace and rest if you don't see the bad news if you're not silenced about your own sin. Would you pray with me? Father God, the, the, the weight of the indictment against us is heavy. It's thick. Father God, we have no excuse. We have no defense. We know our, our sin we know our sinful condition. We know the sinful things that we have done, the things that we have, how we have hurt others. And before you, we just sit. And we look to you for forgiveness. 
We look to you for grace. We look to you to, to fill that verdict with your gospel and to work over our bad news with your good news of mercy and grace that you extend to us in the work and life of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.